Salam, guys. I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. I am Ibrahim Khan, your host, and with me we have a wonderful guest today, Arib Siddiqui, the co-founder of Kestrel, which is an ethical banking app. And then we'll hear a lot more about that. And I've probably, you know, absolutely crucified the description there, uh, Arib. Uh, so apologies <laughs> for that, and you can correct me later on. But no firstly, worries. welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Likewise, thanks for having me. So, Arib, you're actually a London boy, aren't you? You grew up in the sunny environs of Woodford Green, <laughs> northeast London, for those of you who don't know it. How was life growing up as a kid in that area? And how was it like, as a, I guess, as a Muslim as well? I mean, well, first of all, it's technically Essex, but we don't like to uh, spread that around. So, yeah, very happy to take the name London boy for that. But, yeah, it was very different, I suppose. In the school that I went to, I was one of the only Muslims there. So it was me and I had a couple of other friends in my year group. So it was pretty interesting growing up in that environment, not having a big Muslim community around me and sort of having to set the tones for the people and the Muslims who were coming after us. So, you know, like fighting for a prayer room, fighting to have a Jummah and stepping out of class to to go and pray. We kind of had to set that up. It's a very different story now. There's far more people, far more Muslims there at the school who are taking advantage of the stuff that we did. So. Alhamdulillah, it was, a, it was a really good experience, but it entirely changed when we went to university and it was suddenly we were thrown into a mix with a bunch of other Muslims and introduced the idea of ISOX, which was very different. Right now, I think Woodford Green has become basically half Asian by now. Uh, <laughs> it's very different it's now, yeah. Massive. Yeah. yeah, like I said, the demographic of the school has definitely um, taken a turn. So, oh God, I made it sound like that. That was a bad thing. But no, no, it's very different to how I was there. So, yeah, it's it's really nice to see. And so you then went off to UCL to study physics, of all things. How was that whole experience? Yeah, it was, uh, alhamdulillah, incredible. I was really into science as a kid and from my A-level subjects. To be honest, my passion was zoology, what I really wanted to do. But my parents were very firm on you know, being like Asian parents, if if you are going to do biology and chemistry, it should be for medicine and potentially dentistry, but primarily medicine. But I had very little interest in that. And to be honest, I fainted at the sight of blood. So medicine wasn't really on the uh, cards for me. But yeah, so physics were kind of like me meeting my parents halfway. 
in um, still doing something that I enjoyed in the realm of sciences. But it was something that I think they'd seen and what I'd seen as well, that especially if you did physics somewhere in the city, it would be a, a route into financial services or finance somehow into London, which seems a bit odd, but it does seem to be the case for a, a lot of physics grads that they tend to go and work in the city. Yeah. And in terms of your time at university, was there much collaboration? Because I know the London universities, they're quite good in terms of working together with each other, particularly on the Islamic society side. Mm. Is that what you found or was it quite active just within UCL itself? How did that whole thing play out? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, UCL was incredibly active on its own. I think it's one of the largest ISOCs in London. In terms of collaboration, there was a lot of competition, especially when it came to Charity Week. Anyone in the London uni scene will know exactly what I'm talking about. But there was a fair amount of collaboration. And so I was there 2010 to 2013. I think right after that started, there was a really good society that started to pick up called Islamic Finance and Ethics Society, which started in SOAS and then started to grow massively. It's something that's made and is contributed to by each of the ISOCs and members from each of the societies there. So that's, yeah, a really good collaboration project that's come out recently. Yeah, so I think it's a lot more collaborative now than it was when I was there. And Arib, whilst you were at university, what was the kind of thinking about your career? Where did you think that you were going to head with your career and what were the motivating forces behind your career? So I suppose I always had it in my head that I was going to go into the city eventually. It's what my dad did. So he trained as a chartered accountant and then worked in as head of audit in some of the, the big banks in the UK. So I just sort of always had it in my head that that was what I was going to be doing. So I suppose you could say that there was a bit of a home environment factor that was driving me towards that. I suppose the other big factor there is that there's unfortunately not a lot of money to be made in science. So... When If you want to stay there, unless you go, you know, there are a few routes you could do if, if you want to stay in academia. You could go into teaching or you could go into research or something like that. So it was never something that appealed to me that much. So I suppose that was the driving factor to it. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Depending on where you grow up and what's prevalent to that area, the industry that you kind of gravitate towards. So, I mean, if I'd grown up in San Francisco, for example, I'd probably be having exactly the same opinion about tech as opposed to finance, just because of the proximity to Silicon Valley. That's, uh, I think, a, a very interesting point. And I think that that's about right, actually, because the further you seem, one seems to be from London, the less, I think, the pull there is of the city. Whereas, mm. you know, if you're the London unis, I find are very, very attracted to the city and, and work in the city. See, and that's where you headed as well. Mm. Uh, how was that whole thing as a student applying for the corporate career? How easy and difficult did you find it? And then mm. in terms of, you know, once you were in, you got into Deloitte, how did that whole experience shape who you are today? It's interesting. I'm not sure if it's something which is alike to most people's experiences. So I basically, in my second year at uni, in that summer, I was applying to vacation schemes. So I applied to Deloitte for one of their consulting schemes and they said, sorry, but we're now full. But what we'd like to do is to encourage you to apply to our graduate program, which will begin as soon as you graduated from your BSc. So I got pulled into that stream, interviewed there and Alhamdulillah got the job. So it was actually the first place that I applied to. 
which was a bit weird and I kind of wish that I'd applied to more places just to get a bit more of a feel for it so maybe I would have ended up somewhere else. So that's really the story about how I ended up at Deloitte. I wish it was a bit more of a a struggle or some kind of a you know hero's journey towards that but, but alhamdulillah that's how it worked out. In terms of Deloitte I've been talking about this a lot and how it was for me there. Alhamdulillah being in a graduate scheme in a big company like a Deloitte or a BWC or an EY it's kind of like university take two because you are thrown in there with a cohort of other young people who've you know pretty much just graduated none of you know really know what you're doing you're all working together studying together and it's almost like a safe space within a professional environment which is pretty hard to come by unless you you know are working in a startup or or somewhere that's really small where you get to know everyone so it was a really good three years that I had there, literally because of that, and I made some really good lifelong friends from that experience. I think beyond that, being on a graduate scheme in a company, it's almost like you are made a, an instant insider into the company because everyone knows you, the partner knows you, all the senior managers know you. And it's kind of like if you come in as an experienced hire, because I've had to do that a couple of times now, it's a very different experience. You kind of have to fight to make a name for yourself and to become that insider. So yeah, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. And do you think that if you had stayed longer, that would have set you up better for you, what you're doing now? Or do you think that three three years or so is about the right time to jump ship? What's the point where the learning that you get from a corporate <laughs> career starts you know, plateauing? So I was there at Deloitte for three years, which was exactly the length of time the, my graduate scheme and, and where it came to an end. There are a lot of benefits to being on a graduate scheme. I've, I've talked about a few. I think the other is that if you're doing well, you will progress year on year in terms of grade and salary, which is always a plus. I think where I was starting to fall out of love with Deloitte was, number one, in terms of where you end up, I mean, just to be quite frank in, in terms of salary, if you come on a graduate scheme, you will always be at the bottom tier of whatever grade you're being promoted to, as opposed to an experienced hire. So, for example, if you're moving from associate to a senior consultant, a senior consultant might be paid somewhere between 40K to 60K, for example. If you're in a, in a graduate program and you move into senior consultant, you will always end up at the 40K range, whereas someone who's come in externally could be, you know, 50 to 60 so I think I realized quite quickly that if I wanted to make that kind of financial and, and monetary jump, uh, moving externally would really have to be the route to that. I think the other side of things is I should talk about what I was doing at Deloitte. So I was part of a team called Risk and Regulation, which was helping big banks and asset and wealth managers to become regulatory compliant. So working with the regulator in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority and uh, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, just helping them to adhere to regulations and also to conducting investigations on some of these firms, which was interesting. But I always kind of knew there was this big wide world beyond compliance and regulation out there that I really wanted to get my hands on and to experience. And I just wasn't sure if I could do that that well at Deloitte. So that's when I really felt the time came to move. And I moved to a little boutique consultancy called Alpha FMC, which was amazing. And they focused entirely on asset and wealth managers but in all kinds of areas. So I got to experience things from beyond compliance. For example, I was involved in a big mergers and acquisition in Scotland. But more specifically, that's where I first came into touch with fintech and specifically wealth tech with regards to, to wealth management. It was a big, big change for me. And how big was the team relative to Deloitte? Oh, I mean, Deloitte, you've got thousands and thousands of people. I think there's about 
gosh, I think about 10,000 in the UK. In Alpha, when I joined the company, there were just over 100 people. So it was quite a small consultancy. It was about, I think, eight or nine years old when I joined. But then they started growing massively right after I joined. And what was really cool about being a part of that is that they actually floated on the stock exchange whilst I was there. So um, they, they did an IPO, which was nice. an incredible thing to be a part of and to see. And it really kind of, I suppose it was kind of the beginning of me seeing this kind of startup world and, you know, seeing the founders kind of celebrating this and seeing their work kind of culminating in this huge achievement, uh, which is kind of the dream of a startup, yeah, startup team, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. How long did it take them to get to where they were? Oh, it was about 10 years. So Alpha as a company, it was founded by um, a bunch of ex-consultants from Accenture and a few other consultancies who kind of had created this expertise within one specific industry, realized that there was a gap in the market. Not many people were doing this very well. And also, I think it costed on to the idea that in asset and wealth management as an industry, relationships are everything. Is really about who you know. And I think they'd built up a very good relationship list amongst all of themselves. They did really well in that industry and still are doing very well. So I'm, I'm very grateful to that company and what I learned there. And what led you to then jump ship and uh, go to Cambridge? <laughs> yeah, so um, I spent two years at Alpha. I learned loads. I got to see big M&As and I got to see a lot of really interesting business models that people were trying out. So this was pretty much when Nutmeg, which is a you know, a pretty cool robo advice firm and a few other robo advisors were coming up like Wealthify and, and Wealth Simple and a few others which uh, didn't work out so well. But, you know, I got to see those firsthand and get to see their, their business models. But I think I'd sort of had been in consulting for a bit and I was sort of growing a bit tired of working really hard for other people. And I think also there's this thing when you're a consultant where you are sort of a jack of all trades and master of none. You're constantly being thrown into new situations and new companies and meeting new people, which is great. It really, you know, no two days are the same. No two projects are the same. But at the same time, you're often facing across against, you know, people much more senior than you with much more experience. You're kind of always looking at you and thinking, why does this guy know what they're talking about? They look like they're fresh faced out of university. Why should I be listening to them? And for the most part, that is sort of the case in, in consulting. So I was sort of growing a bit tired of that and was just sort of wondering, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? I'd sort of reached a point where it was going to get quite hard for me to switch industries or switch careers uh, later on. So it was literally just a spur of the moment thing. I'd been thinking about it for a while, but I decided, okay, an MBA might be a really good way of taking a solid year out just to focus on myself, focus on what I really want to do. I looked at what applications were open in the UK. I saw I had about two weeks left to apply for, for three MBAs. So there was Cambridge, Oxford and, and London Business School. So I went down, did the GMAT, which is the standardized test, which you have to do for it, filled out some applications and, and Alhamdulillah got in. So you know, Cambridge was my top choice and, and Alhamdulillah, I got to take a year out and go there. And it was honestly one of the best years of my life. How did that whole experience, like it must be one hell of an experience being in Cambridge for a year and just studying with great people around the topic that you love? Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. So the cohort, there's about 200 students. They're from all around the world. It's truly a really international course. About, I think, 96% of the course were non-UK residents. So suddenly just being thrown into the mix with all of these different nationalities and, and cultures, 
was a bit of a culture shock, but also um, just incredibly valuable. So people do MBAs for three reasons. They either are looking to change their industry, get a promotion or change geography. They're trying to do one of those or more. With me, I was really expecting, to be honest, either to change industry, but more realistically to get a promotion of what I was doing or to move to a different company at a higher position than where I was currently. But what ended up happening was I got really inspired by, first of all, an incredible cohort of, of people who come from all walks of life and, and were, you know, in everything from, you know, working at Apple and Amazon to working at big MBB consultancies like McKinsey and Bain. Also, really inspirational professors um, where I got to learn subjects which I'd, I'd never come across before, uh, fintech and venture capital being one of those things. But then finally, I think the big thing about Cambridge was they've got a, an incredible network of entrepreneurs or based all around Cambridge and as part of the Judge Business School, which really, for the first time, opened my eyes up to the possibility of doing something in a startup. And and thinking, you know, thinking maybe entrepreneurship could be a potential route to me because before then, and it sounds weird to say that as a startup founder, but I'd, I'd never considered anything remotely entrepreneurial before going to business school and meeting my co-founder and finding something which we think we could potentially do to make a difference, which was Kestrel. And what was it about the whole experience? Do you think it was just the time that it gave you to kind of reassess or... Was there like a specific like spark that triggered it all off or was it a, just a combination of lots of different things? For Kestrel, you mean? Yeah. For doing a startup. So I think it was very early on. I made a really good friend who's now my co-founder, Dying Tremizi. He's from, from Malaysia. He's worked for the National Bank of Malaysia and has worked in Islamic banking his entire career, helping Islamic banks to become regulated and to come up with innovative new products for retail consumption. Ever since we first met in, in the prayer room at Judge Business School, we were constantly just thinking about why is Malaysia so different from the UK when it comes to how Muslims are served when it comes to their finances, why it was so different from in terms of its infrastructure and, and what had led to that. And it really sort of culminated in us doing a summer research project together. So for the fourth term in the Cambridge MBA, you get to do whatever you want, whether it's an internship, a research project, or to try and start a business of your own. So we opted for the research project. We decided to do a nationwide survey of Muslims' banking habits, understanding where Muslims were banking, were they going with Islamic banks, and if they weren't, why not? And the results of that survey were pretty much instrumental in us deciding, okay, let's, um, I think there's a real gap in the market here, and, and we could actually do a lot of good if we combined our experiences to do something, uh, mine in consulting and fintech and dyings in Islamic banking. So I can talk a bit about some of the findings about that survey if, if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the two key things that we found were, number one, Muslims were not using Islamic banks, but not for the reason we assumed. So I think it comes as a surprise to no one that not many, especially younger Muslims, are gravitating towards some of the Islamic banks in the UK, just because they feel like they sometimes have to make a sacrifice when it comes to the same convenience they get from conventional banking players or from the challenger banks like the Monzos and the Revoluts. But in reality, the overwhelming number one reason for why they weren't using Islamic banks or Islamic fintechs, for example, like Wahid and Yielders, was um, lack of awareness. So they just... Most of them had heard of Al Rayyan, but beyond that, most people had never heard of, for example, the likes of Gatehouse or Wahid and, or Yielders. And the further away you got from the London ecosystem, 
the fewer and fewer people actually knew about these names or had experienced them or come across them before. So we found that that was really the number one factor was just people weren't really aware of the brands that were there. I think the second really interesting insight that we found was that younger Muslims in particular were far more concerned that their money was doing good in the world around them rather than just ticking an arbitrary no interest box, which was a really interesting finding because it had all the hallmarks of what we consider to be ethical or green finance that we know today, which is on the rise and is really popular amongst not just Muslims, but non-Muslims in, in particular as well. And beyond that, what we found is that a lot of younger Muslims were actually kind of skeptical or even suspicious of brands that talked to them based on their religion alone, which is part of the reason why we called the company Kestrel. It's, it's named after a bird. It's nothing inherently Islamic or too in your face because we don't want to put off potential younger Muslim customers. But also we genuinely think that we're building a good product which can be used by anyone, regardless of your religious beliefs. And so you decided, OK, you want to do this thing. Talk to me about how the whole process went from the ideation to the actual building. And, you know, did you have to uh, get on board techies and all that sort of thing? What were, as yeah. someone, Speaking to someone, let's say, who wants to do a startup but has no idea how to go about it, what was that mm. steep learning curve like? And what were the key things that you had to kind of do to get to where you are today? Okay. So I suppose in terms of a timeline, Dying and I graduated in September of last year. And we took a very hard look at ourselves and thought, what are our strengths, but also what are our weaknesses? What are we missing? So we had the strategy side of things down. We had the operation side of things down. But there was a serious lack of the tech person. If we want to build a product which is entirely tech-led and, and data-driven, we need people with those skill sets. So that was the number one thing we were missing. Another thing that was really interesting that we kept running into was, I think, unfortunately, in this industry, and perhaps this might, you know, Muslims might be more guilty of this than others, is I think sometimes we can be a little bit ageist. So if you're, you know, walking into a room and you know, you're going up, you know, talking to potential partners or investors and they can see you and you don't look like you're 30 or, or 40. Um, they can sometimes just pass you over or, or not take you that seriously. So I think we realized we needed someone with a lot of experience who also could take care of the compliance and regulatory side of things and would also make people sit up and notice us. So those were the two areas we really understood that we needed help on. So Alhamdulillah, luckily, a really good friend of dying from back in his school days in Malaysia, was the CTO of one of the largest uh, e-commerce firms in Malaysia called Hermo, which sells uh, ladies' cosmetics products. So we chatted to him about the idea. We managed to convince him, and he really liked it. And alhamdulillah, he, he agreed to come on board as the CTO and to build up our tech team. So from the very beginning, we started to build up the tech team in-house. I think secondly, the other thing is that I talked about my dad and what he's been doing. Alhamdulillah, we were able to convince him to come on board as a co-founder and the CFO to really give us that strong compliance and governance angle to everything that we do. So it really keeps us in check, not only with the money and, and how we're spending it, but also in terms of the regulations and that, you know, we're not doing anything under, untoward. Yeah, first step was identifying our weaknesses and then plugging those gaps and, and building a really strong founding team in that way. We then knew we wanted to be a product-led company. Everything we did had to be around the product, um, whether it was marketing to governance or regulations. We did never want to outsource our tech. We wanted to build that in-house. So Alhamdulillah, we've been lucky enough to build up our tech team, which is entirely based in Malaysia, which also gives us the competitive advantage of keeping our costs down uh, quite significantly. 
But Alhamdulillah, we've built up a really nice culture of, and a really nice team up, up in Malaysia. There's, a, there's about 10 of them now all together. So that was the next step. So we started iterating and the next step was really trying to refine the results of our survey, which meant going out and, and speaking to people. So I've done, gosh, probably 200 plus customer interviews face to face now, just speaking to people and for 20, 30 minutes, just asking very sort of general open ended questions in terms of what are the problems that you're experiencing? What's the hardest part of the problem that you're trying to solve? What are the current solutions that you're using and, and what don't you like about them? Just to really try and tease out what exactly would be the perfect kind of product that we could build for someone. So, you know, similar to how you and, and Mosin formed uh, IFG, you noticed a specific gap and I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, but you've already butchered uh, Kestrel's description. So, so maybe we can, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe this makes us even. But, you know, you guys noticed that there was a significant lack of actual, actual information out there about Islamic finance and Islamic financial products. And you saw a need and decided to fill that. And slowly after, you know, talking to people and, and doing all this, you were able to iterate your product, your product and come up with really cool new solutions from your mortgage advisory service to your pension switching. I think you, you guys have just announced with pension B, haven't you? You know, we've learned a lot and under love from the people who've come before us, such as yourself and, and yielders and, and why the vest in, in terms of what to do and, and what not to do as well. So yeah, I suppose talking to customers was a huge step in that. And Alhamdulillah, just recently we've just launched on the App Store and on Google Play now for anyone to download. So um, I suppose I should say a little bit about what, what Kestro is, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, but before you do that, I'd be interested to hear, you know, what came out or what was the single thing that came out or the thing that most people said out mm. of those 200 plus customer interviews. Mm. Um, I'll tell you why I asked that question after this as well. Yeah, sure. So I think the hardest thing that people found was actually finding legitimate Islamic investment or, or saving products out there. Most people had heard of you know, the big Islamic banks that, you know, everyone knows and they're on high streets in London and Bradford and Manchester and Birmingham. But beyond that, people were really looking at ways of growing their wealth in a way that was convenient, some way that they could track their money and, you know, something that made sense to them. Weirdly, you know, it sounds odd to us because we're in the industry, but the vast majority of people had not heard of, you know, people I thought were really uh, sort of almost household names like Wahid Invest or, or Yielders or, or people like that. So really what we found was people were basically describing an ethical or an Islamic marketplace to us, a place where they could view, compare and purchase products and then track their performance specifically there. Um, so that was the number one finding. Uh, I think the second thing we found was people were incredibly unknowledgeable when it came to their personal financial journey or how to manage their personal finances. So again, <laughs> you guys, uh, you know, shout out to you guys for putting out this, this amazing article on the exact steps on what you need to follow um, to build up your personal finances and where you should start from budgeting to building an emergency fund and paying off your debts to then saving for your short-term goals versus investing for your long-term goals. The vast majority of people had no idea about that. They weren't even considering pensions. They were jumping straight into investments and not goals-based investments. They were just going for things like trade 212 and, you know, which was basically tantamount to speculation. It was entirely non-goals-based and a non-goals-based way of saving or investing. So we realized that there was really an educational element to what we had to be doing beyond just the Islamic tier. 
makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I ask that because I often find that if you have lots and lots of conversations with people, you realize very quickly that there's really, you know, two or three key things that pretty much everyone is saying again and again. And it's quite obvious if you just talk to them. So I think you've done that exactly correct. So tell us, Ari, what is Kestrel? I'll give you the two-liner, which we've uh, we've been refining over the last year. Kestrel aims to be the UK's leading ethical and interest-free payments and wealth management platform, which basically means that we want to be this financial ecosystem or hub, which allows people to do three things, to store their money securely, to spend it easily, and finally to grow it in a manner that is compliant with their personal values. That really boils down to what Kestrel's vision is. We really want to help people to combine their financial goals in life with their personal values, the things that matter the most to them in life, um, to ultimately make a real and noticeable impact on the world around them for the better. So financial goals can range from buying a house, saving up for a wedding, or simply saving for retirement for your future kids' school fees, for example. Personal values, now full of beachhead or smaller target markets, which are British Muslims, that, that obviously means aligning with their religious obligations. But again, through our customer interviews, which haven't just been with Muslims, we found a lot of people care about the impact that their money has on the world around them. They care about reducing CO2 and making sure that their deposits are not being used for carbon generating activities or for weapons development or nuclear energy programs. They want to know exactly what their money is doing at all times. So personal values can vary in, in those sides in, in those sides of things. But we really do think that Islamic finance and ethical finance can be two sides of the same coin for, for many people. So that's really what Kestrel is and, and what it's all about. In terms of the roadmap and the exact products that we want to launch to help achieve that, number one, which Alhamdulillah is, is now live on, on the App Store and on Google Play, is our budgeting tool. We use open banking, which means that you can plug in multiple bank accounts into the Kestrel app, view all your finances in one place, and then get an automated budget generated just for you based on your personal spending. We've invested a lot in our data team and in our AI capabilities. We really want to help people to get on top of their their finances from the very start, which is all about budgeting. Next on our roadmap, which we're very excited to announce for for October, inshallah, will be the Kestrel Marketplace, where we're bringing on specific brands. Many of you will know them. They're very well-known Islamic fintechs, which will be coming on board and where you will be able to view, compare and, and purchase any of the products directly from the Kestrel app. Um, but we're also we're also putting in some some other interesting type services as well. For example, an automatic energy switching provider, which will as soon as it, it picks up a cheaper energy provider, um, it will just switch you immediately to that tariff. We're also something I'm, I'm personally really excited about is a carbon calculator and offsetter, which based on your spending. So for example, Ibrahim, say you you spend a lot on on meat and petrol, which uh, will generate a, a relatively large carbon footprint. Uh, we'll be able to immediately tell you that, you know, you've generated 400 kilograms of carbon this month. Would you like to offset it by planting a tree? So you can do that through the Kestrel platform, inshallah, from, from next month as well. So that's the budgeting tool, the marketplace. But inshallah, where we're heading towards is, and again, many of our customers have talked about this as well, is we really want to launch our own uh, savings pot and product, which will also be linked to a debit card. So the savings pots are places where you can ring fence money towards specific goals, whether it's saving for a holiday, a car or a wedding. And then what you'll be able to do is actually to grow your wealth within those pots by linking them with Sharia compliant savings providers. So the people like the Al Rayyan or, 
or the gatehouse, which which many younger people maybe wouldn't consider. But we want to give them access to that through a through a really innovative and and customer friendly uh, portal, which which can be Kestrel. Um, so so that's that. The the final part is um, which something which which a lot of has come out of loss in the customer interviews as well has been the debit card service as well. That's something, inshallah, we're really looking to bring about early next year in January, February time, inshallah. Brilliant. What were customers saying about the debit service? Like, as in, they'd like to have a card to use? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, what we've seen is it's definitely split. So, for example, with Kestrel, we understand that for the debit card to work and to do it properly, we need to have an offering which is really different and is really differentiated from people. But we noticed a really interesting trend in the market, which was the second fastest growing bank account in the UK in 2019, right after Monzo, was a bank called Triodos Bank. So Triodos is really interesting. They've been around for 30 years. Their origins are in the Netherlands, but they are a purely green and ethical bank. And what we found is, especially Muslims, many of them were switching to this bank and we wanted to understand why. So when we looked into it, Triodos is actually one of the few banks out there which promises to all of its customers that whether it's your current account or your savings account, it will never lend your money to causes that you don't believe in or that you don't agree with, whether it's weapons development, whether it's heavy carbon producing activities like an oil company. And that resonated with a lot of our target consumers as well. So that's why we think a debit card, which promises exactly that we're never going to do anything untoward with your money. Storing your money with us is entirely safe and, and you'll know exactly where it is at all times, unlike a conventional bank, could be a product for a select set of users, which could be very popular. Makes a lot of sense. If you were looking back now, I guess, to a leap of maybe a year ago or so when you were just kind of starting out on this journey, what would be the lessons that you would give yourself? Yeah, I suppose one of the main lessons would be to avoid vanity metrics right? Things that you do, which just make you feel good and make you look good on social media, for example. So a really good example of that and a lesson that we learned the hard way was, alhamdulillah, early this year, we we managed to raise a pre-seed round, which made us feel incredible. And it felt like our first piece of validation. We managed to get some amazing shareholders and advisors who came on board from, for example, the old the ex-CEO of, of Ariane, Sultan Chowdhury, to one of the co-founders of Gatehouse Bank, uh, James Bagshaw. So it was a great validation for us. We decided let's move into an office space, which is this really nice space in Moorgate, and it will be really nice, and and you know we'll be able to post about it. And then you know where the story is headed. Lockdown hit, and we found ourselves paying for an office space that we could no longer use. So I suppose the advice I would give would be, get really get take a long hard look at, at yourself and in the company and, and figure out what is it that you really really need is it something that you have to buy can it be borrowed if it can't be borrowed can it be begs just bootstrap for as long as possible before spending on things which you know in reality are not really a big value add for your product but on the flip side we took that lesson and we um, decided to apply it in malaysia so when lockdown hits in malaysia we were a bit worried about company culture and people being able to work together and keeping morale high. We came up with the idea of renting an Airbnb and quarantining our tech team together, which um, probably conjures up images of, of the social network and what happened with Facebook in the early days. But I can assure you it was a lot more low-key than that. Alhamdulillah, it was a really good thing and it, it really helped us to build up productivity and you know to keep morale quite high in what was a really difficult period. So that's probably the number one takeaway. 
fascinating and then in terms of your place now i guess you're like all startup founders we're, we're all on this journey where we're constantly learning that what's the big challenge or what's the hardest thing ahead of you guys now that you're really trying to work out as you go along so speaking as a startup founder i suppose the two metrics which have been our sort of guiding north star has been number one uh, above anything else monthly rec- uh, recurring revenue and number two monthly active usage alhamdulillah we're, we're doing quite well with our user acquisition so far and, and also monthly active usage but with monthly recurring revenue, I think when it comes to fintechs, many of them have quite a bad track record and there's been quite a few pitfalls that we're trying to avoid. So that's the number one thing that we're really heading towards, which is you know revenue and, and break even, inshallah. So I think when it comes to fintech, really big mistakes would be made by maybe some of the digital banks that have come before us and really big names who've seen massive losses when it comes to their valuations and they've been forced to do down rounds for example and because they were going for something called blitz scaling which is you know let's just grow our customer base massively and worry about profitability later i think now especially in a post-covid world you can't really afford to think like that but there are some really interesting fintech players who come up with some really interesting and innovative business models that we definitely want to emulate and build upon for sure in terms of the future of fintechs generally but also islamic fintechs you're clearly someone who will have done a lot of thinking and research around this area what do you think where do you think we'll end up in five years time will what will monzo have become what will kestrel have become what will you know the islamic fintech world have become do you reckon so i suppose let's break that down so when it comes to the, the fintech world um when it comes to what is a profitable business model, I really think there's there's really only two ways that, that people are going to break even within conventional fintech. You're either lending out people's money or you're helping people to invest money. I think it's one of those two things. I'm not sure just having a debit card and, and even getting subscription for a certain feature on that debit card is really going to fly anymore in that space. So we're seeing some really interesting providers out there, the likes of of Raisin and Chip and Snoop and, and people like that who are doing very well in that space and with regards to pushing towards profitability. So I think we're going to see fewer and fewer challenger banks, although right now it seems like there's a new one every week, and more things which are really helping people with personal finances, get on top of savings, and, and also helping people to invest even more easily. So that's that with conventional. When it comes to Islamic fintechs, I really feel quite strongly about this, that unfortunately, for some reason, Islamic fintechs always seem to be about two to five years behind conventional fintechs when it comes to business models and technology. And it's a real shame because we're seeing business models being used today with new Islamic fintechs which are coming out, which were tried and tested the best part of five, four years ago, and and they didn't work then. So why would they work now? I mean, the normal robo-advisory model didn't work for for UBS's robo-advisor and for Investex Robo Advisor, they had to close down. Nutmeg had to change its its model entirely. So why is that being touted as, as the front line of Islamic fintech today? What I would love to see in Islamic fintech and where I really hope it, it goes towards in, in five years' time is a real focus on cutting-edge technology and a focus on the customer, which goes beyond just seeing them as you know a money-making opportunity and really goes a long way into using customer data and using customer-driven insights to create really valuable products. I suppose the final part of that question is, where do we want to see Kestrel in five years? 
inshallah, we, uh, we're really hoping to go a long way towards doing that and, and to using customer data and to really help them on their personal financial journeys. We've invested a lot in our data science team. We're very lucky to have brought on uh, Dr. Masab Shaharam from, from Oxford University as our head of data science, who's helping us to build some really, really cool tools, which we really do think are things which have not been seen in, in fintech, Islamic or conventional that we really want to put out. And I suppose where we'd like to be in five years time is we'd like to be the true ecosystem where anyone who cares about the way the impact their money has on the world around them or adhering to their personal obligations, be they religious or otherwise, Kestrel will be the immediate name that people will think of, inshallah. So, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Arif, it's been a pleasure having you on. And, you know, inshallah, Kestrel goes from strength to strength. Thank you, inshallah. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, we'll keep on checking in every few years or so as you become the Muslim version of Monzo or Revolut, etc. Or, or, you know, some other uh, <laughs> nice nice comparison. Inshallah, um, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Arib. Until next time, assalamu alaikum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.